and welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, and as you probably know, this is a music podcast. And speaking of music, the song that played me in is entitled Override. It's from the album Nothing's Real, So Nothing's Wrong by Kevin Devine. And this is a fucking great episode. Um, Kevin and I, man, we just fucking started and took that ball and ran that motherfucker all over the place. And it is... I don't know. I once in a while, like there's an extra click to the conversation, and you just really have a chemistry, and you go into some really awesome, great territory. And I feel like I, we could have. I feel like we could have gone for three hours. I wanted to get coffee with Kevin and just shoot the shit on a sidewalk cafe in Brooklyn for the rest of my fucking week. And with as miserable as the world has been fucking lately, it was so nice. To just have a positive, affirming conversation about music and life and s- struggling and succeeding and all that stuff. It was much needed. I hope this conversation brings you as much joy and positivity and uplifted me as much as it does you. Did I word that right? I'm not sure. There's garbage trucks outside. But man, has this been a weird week. Uh, Real quick, in the show notes are all things Kevin Devine. You can go buy this album, which is fucking fantastic. You could buy his other albums uh, from his uh, band camp in the links there. Uh, It's really great. Also, Kevin and I did talk for an hour and a half. The other 30 minutes of this does live on my Patreon. The link to that is in my show notes as well. Become a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month. You get extra. And I put the video of the conversation up so you get a you get it unedited you can go and watch the whole thing or put it on in the background and listen to it while you wash your goddamn dishes um so but i just i you know really feel good about it. and you know this obviously this just there's so much going on in the world i don't want to focus on it but it was nice to be distracted by a great conversation as i mentioned the show link to my patreon you can go to mattdwyer.com, all things Matt Dwyer. And if you really, if you enjoy the show, if you've been listening, if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, that really helps me out a lot. There's a community. Sometimes we have little conversations. Little, because I have a little Patreon following. Nothing to write home about. But I am grateful for it. And if you want to, if you can't throw the $5 down a month, I get it. I fucking ain't working right now, so I fully understand you. You what helps though is if you just tell your friends about the show, write a review on whatever fucking platform you listen to it on. That all helps me and the podcast. Uh yeah, and I've been really working hard on my Patreon. I've been posting every week, I've been doing reviews, there's blogs, there's all kinds of stuff on there. I'm really working my ass off on that fucking thing. So hey, enjoy it. I'm swearing a lot in this intro because it's been a fucking shit week. And the cherry on top of the shit week, we lose Ray Liotta. Goodfellas. One of my favorite all movies of all time. Easily. Most guys probably would say that. Um, Trying to think if there's anything else I'm forgetting. Oh, I have a... During... I was still sick when I recorded this interview with uh, Kevin... So I had like a chest rattle and a ter- and a cough. So I tried to keep it out of the microphone, but I sound like a 
sucked. I'm like one of those chain smoker guys. I hate it. But, you know, we all get sick. And everybody poops. Because I have two kids and I read that book way too much. But it's true. Everybody does poop. You know who else poops? Kevin Devine. (laughs) So why don't I stop my babbling? And let's get to this great... And go to the show notes. All things Kevin Devine. Buy this album. It's really, really great. Um, and enjoy this conversation with Kevin Devine. I need an override. I need an override. I need an override. You, I would imagine a guy who sings probably avoids cigarettes. Or no, I'm well. I'm a bummer. I'm a I'm a one one or two on tour. I'm a one or two a night bummer. There's two band members that I tour with who smoke and roll their own cigarettes, and after a show, I will um, a cigarette from them. Sometimes in a pinch, I'll bum uh, a Philip Morris version from a person in the audience after a show or something. Uh, I haven't drank in 14 years or done other drugs, but I did a lot of those. I did too. I haven't drank in a year and five months. A year and five months is awesome. Yeah. Was yours a, I'm going off the rails, I got to fucking pull it in type of thing? (laughs) Or, Or did you just wise up? I guess it's both. It's wising up Uh, either way. (laughs) I I would say that's, I would say you're right. You know, it was, um, yeah, it wasn't, it was, it was getting kind of yucky. It was getting pretty yucky. And if if it's getting yucky by 25 to 28, I was told it was just going to get a lot yuckier. And I had a lot of evidence that that was true, but I, you know, as you know, having evidence, uh, isn't the same thing as internalizing that evidence for yourself. So, so, uh, I wasn't because I was like looking at family or culture or friends with drugs and alcohol that I was like, Oh, I should stop. It was cause it started to have like some physiological, relational, emotional, professional, psychological, whatever ramifications. And, uh, I was just around a handful of people that I had like a fall down drunk best friend roommate who was like the, the dregs by 22, like waking up in a hotel room in Coney Island, calling me and being like, I don't know who these people are, (laughs) but I think, I I think I might've just fucked this guy, you know, crazy shit. And he got sober and he was like living well. And I was like, when things were starting to get dark for me, I was like, if that motherfucker can do it, I probably have a shot because he was, uh, in trouble. And so I had some people around that I could ask for help. Anyway, I'm coming in hot within three minutes of us meeting each other. But yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was getting off, it was off the rails. It was going to get more off the rails. And there was some amount of wisdom around me that I was able to like somehow internalize that much of to start that process. But yeah, it's wild. Cause I was like my, I idolized John Belushi, not a good not a good role model. Well, it depends what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, I mean, as a performer, but then, and my brother was a Coke dealer and a mess. And like, oh I God. saw people who were a mess around me. And yet I was still like, sure, I'll give this a try. Like, I, it's so bizarre. Well, I mean, I feel like it is bizarre. I, I kind of, yes, it is. And it is. I had a brother who was like, you know, started with, with, with drug, with, with alcohol, whatever he could get his hands on. Park, grew up in Park Slope in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, 
two scholarships for football to leave New York to go to college, other places, like fought his way out of those scholarships inside of a week at both schools, got expelled, physical fights, became like a harder drug user, became a heroin addict, was imprisoned for violent crime, uh, contracted AIDS, passed away from either suicide complications of AIDS or uh, heroin use. One of the three, it was inconclusive to me. Wow. Someone, ha someone has that report, but it was not shared with me. I was 18. Uh, it didn't stop me. In fact, I, if you, whatever you think that whole thing is, whether you think it's like genealogy, compulsive behavior, habit forming behavior, trauma response, whatever addiction is or, or problematic use of things like drugs and alcohol or food or gambling or sex or whatever the fuck else we do, career, money, um, whatever it is, I actually think maybe those things like you're describing for me anyway, they might've been magnets towards it because they compounded. There was a lot of pain around watching that happen. There was also an attempt on my, in my mind to like, I wanted to understand him. You know what I mean? And I didn't fuck with heroin. There was like a, this, it's amazing. I was like a total garbage head who had like a fucking <laughs> dotted line around heroin. Cause I was like, but at least I don't do that. But I, whatever else was around, but because, but I wanted to try to understand what was happening with him. And so some of, I'm not saying that's the whole reason I had a problematic relationship to drugs and alcohol, but I, I wonder, it's like, you know, it makes me think sometimes like I've thought about exactly what you're saying. Why didn't the things I saw and you talk about John Belushi for me, it was like Kurt Cobain and Elliot Smith, two very smart, very sensitive, very willful, very gifted people who also like totally destroyed themselves with drugs and alcohol on the way to ultimately destroying themselves. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. but that didn't, I mean, I still think those two people were brilliant and wonderful contributors to the culture. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I hadn't heard those people, but I don't know if they were the best role models in some other ways, you know what I mean? So, so, so it's a mixed bag, but yeah. Sorry if I'm chatty. You're, no, you're, the first, no. you're the first adult I'm talking to today for any uh, <laughs> any length of time. So you're getting the, the heat. Uh, no, this is what I love. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because Belushi was like a like a symbol to me as well. Like, and yes. I think it, Cobain and 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 Elliot Smith as well. But it was like there was a hope within it, and there was a secret for me of like, oh, this is how I get out of my shitty world, and and can people view me as important and smart, <laughs> which is dude, a hundred percent. And, and for me with those two, and this is like a, an adulthood long, certainly like whatever you want to call career, career long, what those two people represented to me is like a guy who grew up in Brooklyn and Staten Island, but was not attracted to the models of masculinity on offer in Brooklyn and Staten Island in the 1980s and early 90s. Those, as first, I guess maybe first Michael Stipe and then Kurt Cobain and then later Elliot Smith modeled something to me about like a kind of like alternative, no, uh, alternative definition of like a strong, what a strong. Uh, a strength in masculinity could look like that it subverted the kind of masculine tough guy shit that was around me. Cause you certainly could not call any of those three people like lacking for like will or presence or they like knew who they were and they were not afraid to be who they were. And also with, with 
with especially Cobain and, and Elliot Smith to a smaller degree because of the statues, the, the Cobain's place in the culture. I also was attracted as a kid who was getting into punk music to the way they were like, you got the sense, and you could say this about someone like Fiona Apple too, like later, you got the sense that they were like, they got in the thing and then from inside the thing, we're like, oh, the thing is fucking bullshit. <laughs> but also, especially some part of them, I think Kurt Cobain wanted to like get into, he wanted to be as popular as Michael Jackson, but somehow make Fugazi also as popular as Michael Jackson. And that turned out to be an impossible project for <laughs> a lot of really, like, I want to be really good at capitalism, but I also want to destroy capitalism. You know, it's like, but the complexity was attractive to me. And so you're right about them being symbols and also about them representing to me, like, ways that the contradictions in myself could almost make a little bit more sense because I saw some people who were like moving around in the culture that had some of them too, if that makes any sense. It or does. Something like that. It totally does. And I never made the connection because to me, Cobain was like, it was loud. It was aggressive music, but it wasn't fucking assholes in heavy metal. Cause I grew yes. up, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. Very, it's the same exact thing you were saying. There was, I didn't like that masculinity that was around me. So, Cobain and but I never made the connection with Stipe which is 100% true it's like Stipe was like really that first guy who was like sensitive he stood about things and it wasn't macho fucking bullshit that you kept getting from metal and if you think about it's funny because with Stipe I think the correlatives I mean obviously where these three people's careers and bands careers go is like so totally different but when I think about like in the, in the eight, late, mid to late 80s, early 90s, it's almost like there's various points where like, I think it's like Stipe and Morrissey or Stipe and Bono. There's these like, those bands were all kind of like... Yeah, yeah. And I think like Bono was always, it was so clear. I mean, and there's a lot of wonderful U2 songs and stuff. I'm not, but there's, <laughs> he was always so clearly playing to the rafters in a way he wanted, he wanted to be a, a capital S star, you know, Morrissey was always so clearly like for better, a later, so much for worse. But in the beginning, I will, I will always say the Smiths, the Smiths are like a top five band for me. What happened in that, in that band in those four or five years was, was pretty canonical. And then he pretty much goes off a cliff the minute he's uh, removed from them. But he was always so invested in his like fucking bullshit Victorian melodrama thing. Stipe was just kind of like, you, there was like a, an amorphousness about his sexuality. You kind of couldn't tell if he was gay, straight, other, all three. He never really made a point of, of identifying in any direction about that. It seemed almost immaterial. He also was like somebody, yes, who was like standing up in those environments around like the beginnings of like a super kind of uh, uh, like um, a kind of super tough masculine expression in hip-hop a super bullshit masculine expression toxic in the hair metal thing and stipe was just kind of like fuck this weird dude singing these like you know the one i love and and uh and you know radio free europe and this stuff and i think those people and a band like the pixies too very clearly that stuff made an impression on someone like kurt cobain who i think was like he was a, he liked punk and he was drawn to all that, but he also wanted to write Beatles songs. And I think the existence of bands like Pixies and REM and figures like those guys made it like okay for him to be like, well, hair metal's not going to do it. 
but I like something that's loud and bracing, but I also want to make this tuneful stuff. And I think the synthesis of all those things, but I think there's a reason why he was so, you know, if you, whatever stuff I've read, it seems like Michael Stipe was kind of a big, it was almost like REM's on a major label. So it's okay for us to be on a major label. Yeah. Uh, REM's on MTV. So it's okay for us to be on MTV, like that kind of thing. Do you, does, cause as you're saying this, I, I kept thinking about Gordon Gannow and sort of the same, it's different, but like the violent femmes were also like a hundred because the great call. Cause I was like, they're sexuality. Cause it was like, are, are these guys gay? It was like as a high school kid, I was like, it was mine. It was, there was nothing that was presenting stuff like that to me. It was very sexual, but it was also de- like deviant in the sense of like literature. And it was pretty uh, mind blowing. And I don't think they get that credit. I think the, I, I mean, I, that's a, an awesome point. I think the violent femmes, it's funny because they're actually more overtly sexual than anyone we're talking about up to this point. Like there's some songs that are definitely like very direct about, but, but it is inconclusive and unclear about with whom that sex is happening or if it's really just with himself or if he's, if it's a fit, but I do think you're right. And you know what? I think what's funny about them is like, maybe I actually think those they're great. And those songs are great. And there's like a, there's a, there's, there's a seriousness to them and a propulsiveness to them, but there's also like a sense of humor about them that almost, I think because the way he sings and because of the aesthetic choices that band made, I think some people misunderstand it as like kitsch, but it's kind of not kitsch. It kind of is like, there's, they're real. That's a real thing. And I actually think that you're to, to lump them in with that group of bands in, in, in a funny way makes sense. They're almost like the, they're, they're all kind of play shadow and light off of one another. I definitely think a band like REM and Violent Femmes, there's some kind of um, relationship conversation happening. And I will just very quickly tell you that when I was still drinking and very much still drinking and doing drugs, like 23, I opened a show for Gordon Gano for like some alternative rock radio station that briefly existed on Long Island. And this is inconceivable to me to think of now, like having lived the last 20 years of my life, like what the fuck world I was occupying in my brain. But I broke a string and I asked him from the stage if I could use his guitar, the headlining, like to think of that today, I would potentially, I would bring a guitar out to the support band if I noticed they broke a string. And I actually am sort of, a, I wouldn't give a shit if someone asked me if to do it. But a lot of people would be like, don't fucking ask if you can use my guitar. And this is the, this guy was in the violent set. And I was like, can I use your guitar, man? And he was just kind of like, uh, okay. Gave it to me. And then I proceeded to bleed all over his guitar. Like I had a cut on my, my cuticle and I ripped it open. And when I handed it back to him, like he got up to play the first song and he's like, I'd like to thank Kevin Devine for fucking bleeding all over my guitar. And he was actually like wonderful about it. But in retrospect, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like what, what world told me that that was like acceptable, but I haven't, I hadn't thought about that in probably 19 years until you said his name. And then I was like, Oh yeah. That was wild. The cool thing that I did in my past, one of my past lives, but yeah, that era, like femmes, early REM, there was a bunch of others, but that's when music really broke for me where I came out of that sort of like, here's the shit that you're supposed to listen to. Yes. Cause if you didn't listen to Led Zeppelin Sabbath and nothing against those bands, but 
and a lot of the fucking macho shit, you were, you, if you listen to anything that strayed from that, you, there was trouble. You're a weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, uh, do you mind if I ask? I'm 42. How old are you? 53. I don't care. Okay. Wow. You look, you look, you look great. I'm pro- um, probably the drugs and the alcohol. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> They're helping. They're helping. I, something. Um, Thank you. No, but, but also I, I do think, I mean, that my, I, my, my, I have a brother who's that age and definitely there was a s- real split in him growing up in, I, I would imagine growing up in a suburb of Chicago is not in that time frame is not super dissimilar in ways to growing up in like South Brooklyn and Staten Island. And which are kind of a little bit more like suburban parts of New York city itself. They're not, they're not outside. They are the city, the five boroughs, but there's parts of Bay Ridge, Queens and Staten Island, Brooklyn, Queens and Staten Island in particular that do have like some flavor of sub- suburban. It's very, yeah. Once you leave Manhattan, it gets, it, it, it changed. I mean, you know, I lived there briefly, but I was like, I preferred Brooklyn and Queens. Cause I was like, Oh, this is more Chicago like than totally residential. And, and, and also like, I think like the charm of living in Manhattan sort of exists either if you are, very young or I suppose it continues to exist for the very wealthy. (laughs) I hope they're charmed by it. They've certainly fucking taken it over. So I hope they're charmed by their conquest, but not that that wasn't there for literally the length of time Manhattan's existed, but it's, it's metastasized spectacularly, I would say in the last 15 years or so. But that's just to say my older brother was both the first person who introduced me to rush Sabbath kiss Zeppelin and also like Erasure, the Pet Shop Boys, uh, the Pixies, Nirvana. The re- I, pr- I don't know if it was him or my sister with the replacements, but there was both happening. You know what I mean? And I'm sure there were people he hung out with where he was a lot more upfront about the uh, Pet Shop Boys <laughs> records in his collection than other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you couldn't listen to the Pet Shop Boys and stream at Illinois. Like, no, I mean, I people did, that. but that would label you as a homosexual and that would just get you beaten up. Whether you were or not, that's how, that was the mentality that went with music like that. Now and I like was, the Pet Shop Boys, but I was too afraid to even entertain the idea. Of course. And that's what was so interesting about that moment with all of the hair metal stuff was that you had all these dudes that were essentially like ripping off the, the glam, the New York dolls, that thing, which is like a subversive thing, but also then like repurposing it almost as like, they were like these like football teams or something like the, the toxic, crazy, aggressive <laughs> sexuality of it. But they were like all dressed, like they sort of like managed to make something that, that, that it, it, in one expression was kind of like subversive and like uh, inverting that kind of like macho masculinity into like a new expression of uh, what's the co-opted it into like a new, a new expression of macho masculinity, which is for someone who like for me, you know, I was 12 guns and roses, poison, you know, uh, all that stuff. And that I was just that the and REM was around for me. U2 was around for me. Sinead O'Connor was around for me. But the thing that I was absolutely one of those people that was like, I had started to play guitar. I loved all that stuff. And then I was 12 years old and saw the smells like teen spirit video. And I was like, it was like a hard turn. You know what I mean? Where it was like, what is, cause it's funny. Now you see pictures of Kirk Cobain and you're like, Oh, he was like a beautiful man with blonde hair and blue eyes who like, 
like had a chiseled jawline. I'm like, he, if he hadn't, he looks like a famous person when you look at him now, <laughs> but in, co- I mean, a disheveled one, but it, you know, but when you look at, when you looked for me, when I looked at them then, and I'd be interested to hear to me, I didn't have all this intellectual, whatever. I, all I knew was like, this is different than Michael Jackson or Madonna or whatever, but it's also different than like Guns N' Roses or Poison. And they kind of looked like people you would like see in a gas station or a social situation. And then you like, then you get into indie rock and you actually like, you see super chunk or somebody for the first time and you're like, Oh no, they really do look like people that you would see in a gas station or something like that. Like yeah. they're just people like Kurt Cobain kind of actually looks like Brad Pitt if he lost 50 pounds, but everybody else kind of. And so I, I think that that was the great appeal of that band was that it was transformative just to be like, oh, this dude doesn't seem to give a shit. And also like the sense of humor is like Buster Keaton or something. Like at the award shows, you could just feel them like taking the piss with the whole thing and being kind of like, this yeah. is silly. It's, it, sounded, it sounds cliche, but it was like the first time I felt like I found something that I identified with and that spoke the same thoughts that I had. Because before that I was searching and like Jane's addiction was close, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite there. And then, and then, you know, Fugazi, I was into Fugazi before I yeah. found it, but still wasn't, there was, there's still like sort of a cerebral element of about Fugazi where there's an emotional level that I connected with Nirvana. Well, also I think I love, I love what Fugazi is and I love a lot of its music too. And I think that's the coolest, like the whole, like never play a show for more than $5 put, put out, do everything yourself. And they built something really formidable out of that. That is to me, like kind of unassailably fucking amazing. Also Nirvana had better songs. (laughs) And, 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 and for me, like I love the spirit energy uh, like a photo negative entrepreneurialism of do it yourself, punk rock. I love anything that decides to set up a lemonade stand instead of like, try to like open a franchise in the mall. Anything like that is deeply, deeply like I, that's where I learn. I, that's, but I also, if I like, that's great. And also if you give me a choice between like, uh, I don't know, drain you or on a plane or Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle or whatever. Uh, or like, I like, there's a lot of great Fugazi songs, but those are songs to me. I like songs. I like, I'm like, you know, whatever it is, the church of the Beatles, the church of like, I want, it's like, and that's what made that band. I, I, I could understand identifying feeling like you were being spoken to for the first time. And also to me, it was like, they were like punk rock Beatles songs. Like, you know, they just like took the, sh- the all of the avail- the immediacy of that and like turned the volume up all the way. Whatever was major key, they made minor key. And then he just like screamed melodies you could remember at the top of your lungs. And that was, <laughs> that was an info. And also as a person learning to play guitar, I was like, I can't really play the solo to November Rain, but I can certainly play Come As You Are. Like that's something you're like, and now I can maybe play the solo to November in a little bit, but <laughs> at some point through learning about that, that kind of songwriting and guitar playing through a band like Nirvana, you kind of start to become like, well, why would I want to play the solo to November rain? 
<laughs> yeah. Fucking lame. But anyway, <laughs> I as that... you've learned, Oh, you know, sorry. No, I was going to say, as you've learned inside of 20 minutes, I can, and that's like, you can too. I can, this is a thing I could talk about forever. It's been like animating for 30 years <laughs> to me. So, so yeah. Well, I felt the similar way with Elliot Smith. And even though Elliot Smith's music was quiet, there, it was loud in a way. Like it had that aggression within the subtlety and it, which is pretty mind blowing to think about, I think. That's a beautiful way to say that. And so, so so often un or misidentified in, in, in the description of his music. To, to me, what I when I first heard him, I was 17, I guess, and I saw him play at Tramps in New York in 1998, probably right around the time he was nominated for an Academy Award or was playing at that song at the uh, Miss Misery at the Oscars. And I remember I didn't know very much. I knew about him a little bit. I had some friends that played me some of his music. I went to see him and it was just him. And he was very capable that night. He was very, and I, it was, it was, it was one of those things you stand there and you're like, it was like your head kind of moved a little bit <laughs> to the side and you were like, Oh, and I had been playing some music, not like that, but some acoustic shows, solo shows, open mics and punk rock, opening punk rock shows at BFW halls with an acoustic guitar. And I was in a band that was loud, but I was also starting to do some of that stuff. And seeing him, it was like, oh, you can do it and be just as punk as the punkest band there is. Because what his music had, when you say it was loud in a way, there was something uncompromising about the vision of humanity that I feel he was, uh, there was a, an economy of language. He was a writer, but he was a writer the way like Raymond Carver, like Flannery O'Connor, or like the, the, it was this, the things he saw about people, it was like, boom, baby Britain feels the best floating. Oh, what's the lyric fights problems with bigger problems. I've never heard a more adept description of an alcoholic or a drug addict <laughs> ever than fights problems with bigger problems. What is that one fights problems with that's sit five words. And it's like, I, I don't know. I just read naked lunch recently. I think it says more than like, I love William S. Burroughs. Naked lunch is great, but I think I get more from that one lyric than I did from like 300,000 words about like tripped out descriptions of orgasms or whatever the fuck <laughs> naked lunch is about. But I, I just mean to say that like, I just mean to say that I think it was loud. And also what it, what it was, was like, he, for me, he kind of like in a fucking beautiful way for which I'm very grateful. He kind of like destroyed the phraseology singer songwriter forever for me, because what that typically means is like a person with an acoustic guitar, usually an acoustic guitar, maybe a piano, mostly an acoustic guitar, like kind of like, you know, mewing, uh, these like treacly, uh, observations about, their love life or, you know, the, the world through this lens of, and that's what maybe 85% of it is. And his shit was just, it, it had some of the aesthetic earmarks of that world. There were acoustic guitars, there were strings. Sometimes there was gent. He sang softly, but if you 
I don't know, sit with a James Blunt record and then sit with an Elliott Smith record and tell me those are two people doing the same thing. In fact, sit with an Elliott Smith record and then sit with almost anybody who's called the singer songwriters record. And you're kind of like, if you're really listening, you're like, this is something else. Um, you know, and I think you nailed it when you said like, it was quiet, but it was loud. It, it's, there's something very much in there that you're like unflinching. There's like a dare in some of his music that is kind of like, woof. <laughs> so, and sorry. And then just to share one last thought, it's, it's that actually also the degree of accomplishment in his musicianship is generational. That's something I feel like as a, as a guitar player, as an arranger, as a harmony, as trying to, there's stuff that he's doing that you're like, like learn, trying to learn Elliot Smith songs, just like Beatles songs or whatever. I feel like makes you a better musician because you're like, what the fuck? What is that chord? I don't know. I know I would have never, how do you even put your fingers together to make that chord? You know, there's just things he's doing and that's, it's not showy, but it's so much more intricate than, than you might feel upon first interaction with it. And I think that's also like, I kind of love people that like just do it and don't like go like, look how cool this part is. And then you try <laughs> to learn the part and you're like, what the fuck is he even doing? So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about his lyrics. Cause I agree. And I never, it, I guess I never pondered his approach to lyrics as that much. I mean, I appreciate them. I think when I listen to him too, I just get lost. Like it's, he's one of those yeah. few artists where you go into a world and you feel, you feel different. Like you literally feel different as you listen to his music, which is magic. You're so right. And the, 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 also one of the few, I feel like people who, you know, he uh, kind of understood in a really intense way. And it was the same thing, like Church of Beatles, some Beach Boys, definitely some like 70s. Every once in a while, there's some flourishes where you're like, oh, he did his time with the, Se the Stones, Zeppelin <laughs> Circuit too. some of the guitar stuff, even some Aerosmith on some of those records. Sometimes you're like, oh, he definitely, but he also did his time with, with, like Hank Williams and old and like lead belly and all old, old finger picky kind of like a, what's that guy, Harry Smith. Is that the, like uh, the folk anthologist? Is that, is that, that I, I feel I like that's know. it. And then also did his time with punk rock and did his time with like, um, I feel like also was like a person who like, you know, read a lot and had some of what's informed. And it's funny because I almost feel like the world you're describing Somehow it's like he understood the tension that exists between like going back between major and minor and sevenths and how a chord can leave you hanging off a cliff and how it's more like shapes and colors. It's math. But if you do it in a certain way, it's like shapes and colors. And I feel like he had a very strong sense of that immediately that he kept developing into his own language. Um, now I feel like there's certain chord movements that for me, anytime I do them, or anytime I hear them done, I'm like, oh, that's an Elliott Smith movement. Even though he was doing a version of it thinking probably it was like a Brian Wilson movement or a John Lennon movement or whatever, but they kind of got refracted through his treatment of it. And I think the lyrics, he found a way for the, the, the way his voice sounded, his arrangements, his melodic structures, and what he was actually saying to sort of all like look like one another, which is really fucking crazy, frankly, to do. Um, and, and a rare achievement. The only thing I would ever say is like a 42-year-old who 
hasn't died and doesn't want to today is that sometimes I listened to Basement on the Hill on this last tour for the first time on a late drive one night. My bass player, Andy, who's wonderful, a killer musician, he was like, I haven't really done much time with him. I don't know why I picked that record to listen to because it's definitely fucking crazy and all over the place. And But I was kind of, in, I, was, I was interested to hear it. Sometimes I just wish he had been able to get to a place in himself where some of what he wrote about, I feel like his music got to go so many places, but some of what he wrote about, it just stayed in these, he wrote about it brilliantly, but some of what he was writing about, about it got myopic by the end in a way that I wish, I just wish he had been able to experience more joy in his life. Or peace. Yeah. Not that I needed him to write. I, I, I'm okay. I don't need, I'm not, you can't, I'm, I don't mean even that as a criticism. It's like a wish. I wish because I think that he was such a brilliant, 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 generationally brilliant artist that I just kind of like, he deserved a little more peace, you know? And I would have loved to have heard like the Elliott Smith record that people liked half as much because it was like half about like he was feeling pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that week, I would have been interested to hear about that too. But but yeah, anyway, he was life-changing. That sounds cheesy as fuck. But for me, he was definitely like, it was like the Kurt Cobain thing and then the Elliot Smith thing. And then it's like, I'm talking to you. But, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I read David Lynch's, I don't know, it's sort of a memoir. The Big Fish, the Meditator. Yeah. I remember that. I read that I re- too. I read that recently, but the thing that really like sticks out in my head is him saying that you create, you don't create from misery. You create from a space of joy, which I think is true. And I hear you talking about Elliot Smith and I'm like, yeah, so many people. I mean, what if he would have gotten to that place of joy and peace and where, where would we have gone or where would any of us go? I think we all have bought into that or I had that myth for a long time of be a miserable piece of shit artist a hundred percent and I you know why we buy into it is because there's so much and I mean not even just in like the 20th and 21st century with the advent of things like rock and roll and weird movies and you know, beat poetry and other fucking, you know, the fucking the Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol, things that I could express some darkness, you know, or some awareness. And David Lynch, I mean, what's fascinating about that quote is that if you were to, and I, and I, I think I can translate what it means to me, but if you were to watch any David Lynch, really, outside of maybe like the straight story or something, I don't necessarily know that the average person is sitting there going like, this was, this was created from a place of joy, you know, like uh, about 12 scenes raced to mind from, from various things that I'm like, yeah, but, but what I think, what I hear in that is like about, it doesn't mean you don't get to explore and express darkness because being a fucking person and living in some kind of attempted reality adherence, it would actually be psychotic and willful to not acknowledge. If you're trying to, everyone's artistic mission statement is different, but for me, it's like, if you're trying to represent what it means to be a person in any kind of way, some of that's pretty fucking dark sometimes. 
uh, and a lot darker for some of us than for others. You know what I mean? So like, I think that, but there's joy and truth. There's joy and there's freedom. I think there's freedom in uh, not looking away from the things that are fucked. And so maybe when I hear him say about creating from a place of joy, that's kind of the, I don't think that necessarily means creating from, but it's the same thing as thinking like if I fucking, I don't know, have some spiritual practice, prayer and meditation, I'm supposed to like float in the Lotus position above the ground. No, you know, it's like, I remember Leonard Cohen saying something once about one of those times he like went up to the monastery for five years or something Buddhist. And he was like cleaning toilets for monks and, you know, carrying pails of water around or whatever. And sort of saying like, and the journalist was like, maybe it was Terry Gross or something. It was like, how did you feel removing yourself from the conditions of the material world? And he was like, there is no removing yourself from the conditions of them. They were up there with me too. And in some ways, because I'd removed myself from it and they were just in my head, they were louder than they ever were. Like thinking about what was happening down. He kept calling it Boogie Street, the rest of where we are. <laughs> thinking about what was happening down on Boogie Street. And the answer to that just is like, to me, it's like, uh, spiritual experience doesn't mean you're floating above the thing. It actually means you're like fucking in the very middle of the thing and you're like trying to move through it. And so to me, when I hear about David Lynch talking about creating from <laughs> joy, I don't think that means like, he's like, it's like a Disney soundtrack playing in his mind. I think it means he's just, in, he's able to be in the middle of what it really means to be a person when he's talking about that. Yeah. That's, Personally, what I'm struggling with, because you said remove yourself spiritual, because I I know you're very politically aware, and often uh, speak about it and whatnot. And I've been like, it's in our time that we're in right now. It it's is cool time. <laughs> Good stuff. And yeah. I have I have two daughters, and like the nightmare, yeah. like I can just go down one thought tunnel of like what the future lies for. I just, and it's, it's madness and it's chaos. And I'm like trying to find, and I'm at, talking about this cause I'm tr- want to find out how you, I'm trying to be present. I'm trying to meditate. I'm trying to be like, all I have is this fucking small corner, my little fucking place with my kids and that joy to not let the chaos ruin it all. And just, cause I can't control anything. <laughs> so what's your answer? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I just realized I actually, how weight of a weight that was I laid on you. No, it's actually, I mean, to me, it's, it's, um, it's what, it's what I think if you are in any way in communion with reality, it's, uh, these are the questions every day, right? Like to some extent. And it's like, I would certainly not, uh, be, um, uh, I don't know what the right word would be like uh hubristic enough to like posit some kind of like fucking prescriptive answer to that. Cause that's like what I think like uh spirituality influencers on social media are doing or something like that, or like any organized, uh, there's a lots of things that will tell you what you, this is the three step process to peace and enlightenment in a chaotic world. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the fuck, I don't know about that, but what I know, I also have, I have one daughter. Uh, I've, I don't know why I said it in that construction. You have two, <laughs> so I have one. I have, uh, I have, I'm daughter. I have a daughter as well. Um, and, uh, and when you think about the world that they're 
uh, inheriting and, and, um, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of darkness there. I also sometimes think about like, I don't know what it was like to be a person at any other time in human history, but I would imagine that at every time in human history, there have been like some plugged in amount of people that are like, this has to be the worst time in human history, right? Like looking around. And so, I mean, you know, I don't mean to be glib about something that's, that's like ultimately pretty serious. I just mean like, I think you've identified something that for me, like, I don't know that I think I'm going to find the answers to anything, whether it be political, sociological, relational, uh, intra relational, familial, spiritual on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, usually when I go on there, it is a net negative. It doesn't mean I don't go there. I, I, I've, I've messaged you on there when I was fucking sick that one time. And when I missed the first interview we were going to do, uh, I use those things for, for what I do for a living. And I try to basically use them for nothing else at this point, because I, I it's a, it's, it's a net negative spiritual experience every time yeah. I go on there. Um, what even the people I love and respect on there, I don't know that I think like uh, the, the like gut level questions that exist in me are being answered by them in that context or format. It just kind of, and to get to them, I still have to sift through so much other scary, obfuscating bullshit to even get to the thing. So uh, I feel like to me, it's like you identified this little corner of the playground that I have with, whether it's your family or your inner life or your whatever the thing is that, that people define as the place that you can potentially keep relatively like untouched by the hands that want to not just touch, but throttle and break everything. Um, and so then I feel like it, it is incumbent upon me to really build those places up to the best of my ability to be, not to get, not to hide in them, but to like, really understand like not having control is not the same thing as not having agency, not having control. It's not the same thing as not being able to make effort. But what it does mean is I don't get to be in charge of the results of that effort often. So then the efforts worth investing in as an, as, as an end, what is the construction of that as like an end to itself or whatever? Like that's the point. The point is like, how do I invest in what I do because what I do is the only thing I have any fucking control over. And that doesn't, and whether that's at a level of like social movement or at a level of like, how do I own it when I lose my temper with my kid? How do I own it when I act from reactivity and fear with my partner? How do I own it when I do something transgressive in any other, you know, in any of my relationships? How do I own it when I do something transgressive to myself? Uh, when it comes to what people like you and I are trying to do, I can make all the effort in the world to make a record I love. I can promote a tour and then whoever's going to come is going to come. Some nights you're going to feel like, shit, there's a bunch of people here. Some nights you're going to feel like, unless you are somebody who's really like won some Tesla ride lottery <laughs> ticket, wherever, you know, you're just like uh, uh, to killing it numerically everywhere. The rest of us are like, some nights you get to feel real good. Some nights you're like, all right, we're playing for these 50 people and the bartender tonight. And the lesson for me there is that if it's effort, not results, I got to play with the same commitment for the 50 people as for the thousand people. 
because they're the same fucking people. That's just however many of them were there that night. It's certainly not their fault. And on and on and on and on. I'm just like picking. And I guess maybe if I can do enough of that on any given day, I actually get to be something like grateful for all of this shit inside of the chaos instead of just like wholly terrified and reactive. It doesn't mean that stuff's still not real, but so is the stuff you're grateful for. You know what I mean? Like I, I, it doesn't, it's not an either or proposition. They're all happening at the same fucking time. And so to me, it's like, if I give that away, then what the fuck's the point? If the only thing I'm doing is, is if, if it's just to be in a cycle of reactivity to the things that are horrific, I'm kind of like, um, that stuff's there too, but there's a lens through which I need to be able to see the stuff that's not horrific because that stuff's there too, if that makes sense. It's like yeah. all happening at the same time and maybe part of the dissonance, maybe we like want it. I don't know what we want. Maybe we want it. Maybe sometimes we want it neater, but my experience is like, I don't know. I don't know if anything's neat. I love my kid. And I'm sure you feel this way too. I love my daughter in a way that if you told me this laptop sitting on a coffee table, if you were like, eat the coffee table to prove your love, I'd be like, I'll try, you know, and then I'd start <laughs> trying to eat the coffee table. And also sometimes I'm like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. Like when she does something that's infuriating or it goes from zero to 60 or she's not, you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. moments where you're like, and that's real too. I mean, to the listener, I'm not really going to kill anybody, <laughs> let alone my six year old, but no, I'm also not going to eat my coffee table, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's all there at the same time. Boy, but yeah. Does any of that make sense? Or does it totally. sound like a complete psychopath? It might be both, but that's what I got. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm a psychopath, but it made sense to me. I, I've been trying to find a way to articulate how to pull these things together that we talked about and how it translates into... Because you were talking about, like, Elliot Smith and his the way he w works his lyrics and music, all these things and how it relates to how you approach music. Because it feels and now maybe I'm the psychopath that it's all interrelated to how you create. And I wonder if that is too broad of a fucking funnel no, to no, try no. to shove it's, this all. No, it's, it's not. I mean, I think that, I think that I, it does. No, it makes perfect sense to me. And I, 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 I guess I don't think any of us, whether you're a sanitation operator or you're a songwriter or you're a surgeon or you're a whatever, uh, a kindergarten teacher, none of us do our jobs in complete uh, disassociation from the other conditions of our lives, right? Like we bring ourselves everywhere we go. Um, and I think that for me, it's like to apply that to the conditions of creating something, making songs and performing them, the Elliot Smith and the Kurt Cobain thing informs to me and, and to some extent, like, you know, let's point out like people like Sinead or Michael Stipe or whatever, like, uh, I'm always going to be interested in like what's being said and the conviction with which someone is saying it. And I would say the closest thing I have to like an artistic mission statement is that like, I am interested in, 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 in recording and then performing. Uh, performing whatever it means to be a person to this very subjective person uh, at any given time. 
right? Then that's what the records are. I'm not going to, I don't think I'm, I mean, I'm going to like ever become like someone who's in danger of writing like Tommy by the who, or like, or like, you know, or like the guy from the Decemberists and like, be like, this next record is like a, a series of, um, fictions about a 15th century Japanese poet that I read like that, which is beautiful. I'm not shitting on that. That's an artistic, I, that's just not what, how I am uh, wired and, and that's not the engine in me. Um, and I think that for me, like part of what, what that means is like my hope is that that project, it's like that film project seven up. Is that what it is? Like seven, 14, 21, yeah. 28, Michael Apted. Is that the direct? I can't remember, but where they follow those people for throughout their lives. To me, it's like, if you listen to a record of mine from 23, 28, 32, 36, 42, hopefully 62, there's, there are things you could be like, Oh, there, there's a through line threaded throughout, but also like, it's, it's different. What's being expressed because my hope is like, you're a person. And so there's a consistency, but also you change, right? You do when you don't. And so to me, it's like, there is darkness in things or there is weight in things or there is, uh, you know, I can be in love and I can be afraid of being hurt. I can think aspects of the world are really beautiful and I could look around and see all the things in the world that are fucking terrifying or infuriating. And so that I'm being reductive and picking two broad things to pick to, 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 to funnel that through. To me, I think like what I hope is represented for one thing, from a technical perspective, you hope you get a little better at something each time you record and perform, which is like, I hope like every record you're like, maybe I got a little better at the arrangements this time. Maybe I got a little more interesting as a harmony singer this time. Maybe this time I tried to play the lead guitar parts in a different way, whatever the thing is. Uh, and you hope that, that you grow that way. Maybe the chord choices are a little cooler or whatever. Uh, and then when it comes to the actual project itself, it's like, I hope I got a little better representing whatever it meant to be this person at this point, this time. And it's not only, nothing's binary, nothing's black and white. It's not only beautiful or terrible. It's not only, uh, it's, for me, it's like none of it's one thing or the other. It moves around all day. And so I think that's also probably why to some extent the music is like, it's not like I make records that are so fucking unrecognizable. It's not like one's a German techno record and one's a hip hop record and one's a folk record. But inside the framework of like guy with a guitar, they're pretty different. Sometimes they, 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 I dre they get dressed up in different clothes and so do the shows and so do the tours. And, and so to me, it's like, uh, you know, my hope is that also, um, in keeping to the project of following whatever it is at any given moment that interests me aesthetically, uh, then it doesn't have to get super stale because I get to like, kind of be like five, I can make a record that sounds like to keep using the ones we've been talking about. If I want to make a record that sounds like Nirvana I, or, or, or is influenced more by that part of my brain, I can. And if I want the next record to be like, some pristine Americana folk record. I can do that too. And I could put them out under my name and they get to all exist in the same place. And in doing that, to bring it to what you asked at the beginning of this, 
the spirit of the thing that I was so attracted to by people like an Elliot Smith or a Nirvana or whoever was that like punk rock to me isn't about like tattoos and mohawks or like spitting or, or whatever. Punk rock to me is about like the freedom to do whatever the fuck it is that you are drawn to do, particularly in an aesthetic environment without concern about like, I don't know, I hope enough people like it to justify my continuing to do it. But I'd also continue to do it whether they let, you know, did or not. I might not do it for a living, but I'm going to keep, you know. And so I think that's, if any of that addresses any of what the question was, that's the thing to me. It's like, how do you subvert easily categorizable, is that the word? Categorizable ideas about what a thing gets to and has to be. And how do you do that in a way that's not like, like it's cool. I, I'm not like... Ziggy's going to make like a record with a character, not like Slim Shady or Ziggy Stardust or something. <laughs> like, how do you just like make, be you, but get to be different versions of you every time you do a thing. And I think that as long as the only concern is like making something that is representative of whoever you are at any given time, you get to do that. And some people will like some more than others. And most people, if you're doing it in a way that's kind of outside of traditional infrastructure, don't, you don't have to worry too much because most people will never even fucking know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but for the people that do, it seems like they really connect to the spirit of it. Hope any of that makes sense. But. It did. Thank you very much for listening to this conversation with Kevin Devine. As I said, there's 30 minutes of this that live on my Patreon. Go to the link in the show notes, become a Patreon subscriber, tell your friends about the show. Thank you very much for listening. I, you have no idea how grateful I am. Thank you. I need an override, I need an override